workforce uh, in our summer camp. Uh, we're in need of some full-time staff now, and so came down here searching for some people that'd be willing to come up to the Chicago land area and help us. Uh, I have a daughter who is, her and her husband and family are missionaries in Kenya, Africa. I've had the opportunity to be over there a couple times in that country. And I'm going to tell you that uh, if you want to take it easy in the Lord's work, go to Africa and be a missionary. If you want a challenge, come to Chicago, okay? And so there it is. Uh, we have a multicultural ministry. I'm just kidding about that, by the way. Um, I wouldn't want to go to Kenya, but the Lord uh, has planted me in Chicago, so that's where I'm at. I'm a country boy. I'm originally from Tennessee, and God kind of picked me up and dropped me in the middle of a big city, and I'm quite the anomaly up there. And I have appreciated the friendship that I have developed with the people here at Fairhaven uh, Baptist Church. We need people like you all to get into ministry and to serve the Lord. And I am so glad to see you here. I'm glad that you're here. I thank you for being here. I thank you for preparing for the ministry that God has called you to. And at this point in your life, you may not know what all that ministry is, but I thank you for preparing. And maybe you do know. Maybe you've got a direction. I got news for you. Whatever direction you think that is, the Lord's going to throw some twists and turns in for you. And he's going to stretch you. But we need you. Our country is in a mess. There's no doubt about it. And I'm not here to talk about our country, but I'm telling you, the Lord needs us to be shining lights around this nation. And so we need you to do what God has called you to do, but we need you to do it with a pure heart. And so keep yourself right with God. Keep yourself pure. Keep yourself walking with the Lord. And I thank God for the stand that this college and this church has taken on the doctrine of God's word. So please don't stray from that. All right, that was sermon number one. You ready for sermon two? Okay, here we go. We're in the book of Matthew, and uh, in this chapter, Jesus makes five claims to be greater than something or someone. He's making it very plain that he is the Messiah. He condemns the Jewish leadership for certain practices. He's showing that he's the Messiah and that they should accept him as the fulfillment of all the Messianic prophecies. It's all in this chapter. But they didn't accept, they rejected. And Jesus was teaching them a lesson in this chapter that is, an, that is applicable for us today. And I want us to draw some truths out of here. Let's begin reading in verse number 1. It says, At that time Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the corn, and his disciples were hungered. And I don't know about you all, but I'm a, getting kind of a hungered. We're getting close to lunch, right? Okay. And began to pluck the ears of corn and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath, uh, upon the Sabbath day. Uh, that's a little bit of a stretch, but, you know, they're, they're, they're making accusation. Verse 3. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was a hungred and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the shoe bread, which was not lawful for him to eat, and neither for them which were with him, but, for, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. There's his first claim, greater than the temple. Now let me ask you a question, Bible college students. 
Who is he referring to in verse number 6 when he says, in this place is one greater than the temple? Himself. He's claiming to be greater. Verse 7. But if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. There's his second claim. Let's go to the Lord in prayer and ask his blessing upon this message this morning. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you don't leave us guessing, Lord, but that you give us truth. Lord, I thank you that your word has been unchanged, Lord, for 2,000 years. What a wonderful God that you are. Lord, I thank you for what we've heard and seen already this morning. I thank you for these young people who have come here for the purpose of preparing for ministry. I thank you for this church and this college who has stood strong and remained faithful to you over the years. And Father, we ask now that you would preach this message through me and give these young people what they need, Lord, to be able to leave here and to serve you better and be better prepared for what you have for them. And these things we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. Look at verse number six with me again. But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple. Jesus Christ is speaking to the Jews, right? And so here he is talking to the Jewish people that have had this temple for years. And the temple and the temple system, it had been given to them by God to picture Man's need for a Savior and God's future provision in that Savior through the Messiah. So understand what the temple was for. As a matter of fact, when Jesus Christ was born in Luke 2 and verse 11, the Bible says this, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a, what's the next word? Savior, which is Christ the Lord. And that word Christ would be equivalent to the Old Testament word Messiah. It's his, is the anointed of God. And so the Christ that was to come in the form of Jesus Christ was the Savior. So we're even told in that verse that salvation comes through the Messiah. But the Jewish leadership had reached the point where they put more emphasis on the temple and its system than on what the temple represented. You see, the temple was a shadow of the things to come, not the reality of those things. They loved the imagery to the exclusion of what the imagery represented. It was to be a temporary system until the coming of the one who fulfilled it, and he was standing in front of them. Everything about the temple pointed to Jesus Christ, and we're not here to talk through all the imagery of the temple. I'm sure that you have had classes that will teach you that, or you're going to have them that will teach you that. But everything about the temple pointed to Jesus Christ, and here he was standing in front of them, and yet they rejected him in spite of the fact that they had all the imagery that they looked at every day. All their life they had practiced the imagery that represented the Messiah, and here he stood. He was greater than the shadows that represented him. Would you agree with that? Then we get to verse number 7. And verse number 7 helps us to understand what Jesus is trying to communicate. He says, but if you had known what this meaneth. And then he quotes from Hosea. I will have mercy and not sacrifice. You would have not condemned the guiltless. In other words, they were accusing, the, uh, the, the Pharisees were accusing the disciples 
And Jesus said, they're guiltless. And if you would have truly understood what Hosea was saying when he said, I will, make, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have thrown out your accusations. So if that's true, then what he's quoting here from Hosea chapter 6 is pretty important to Jesus' argument, right? Which means it's pretty important to us. Now, flip back, keep a hand here, flip back to Matthew chapter 9. Matthew chapter 9, I want you to look at verse number 13. Jesus, again, is talking to the Jewish leadership, and he gets to verse number 13 of chapter 9, and he says this, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. So two times in a matter of a few chapters, Jesus Christ quotes the same verse from the book of Hosea. So I would say that's pretty important, wouldn't you? So I think we need to go back and look at it. Go back with me to Hosea chapter 6, please. Keep a marker here at Matthew because we're coming back to the book of Matthew. So put a marker there and then go with me to Hosea chapter 6. And when you get there, we're going to begin reading in verse number 4. Hosea chapter 6. We're practicing here a principle of interpretation called intertextuality. Now, what intertextuality means is that when a text is quoted, is this mic not working? I'm muted. Intertextuality, what that means is when a text is pulled out of a context, in this case, Hosea 6, pulled out of uh, the book of Hosea, it's quoted in Matthew chapter 12. What you have to do then as you uh, interpret that passage is look at both contexts because they both apply now. And so oftentimes in the New Testament, there's a reference to Jesus Christ being quoted from the Old Testament in the New, and it's a messianic passage. And so when you interpret it in the New Testament, it, you understand that it's, it's interpreted in light of the Old Testament passage, which teaches on the Messiah. So therefore, Jesus must be the Messiah. So with that in mind, let's look at this passage, bring it into the context that Jesus is trying to teach us in Matthew chapter 12. In Hosea 6, beginning in verse number 4, it says this, O Ephraim, what shall I do unto thee? O Judah, what shall I do unto thee? For your goodness is as a morning cloud, and as the early dew, it goeth away. Now he's stating here the condition of the Jewish people. And their goodness was as the morning dew. It would sparkle in the morning sun, but would quickly burn off and leave the ground dry and barren and shallow when the sun got hot. It was a show. That's what he's saying in verse number four. Your goodness is as a morning cloud, as the early dew, it goeth away. All of your goodness is nothing more than outward. It is just a show of, uh, of what is real. It's not there. It looks good, but it's not real. Verse number five, therefore have I hewed thee by the prophets. God is stating his judgment now. He gave us their condition in verse four. He's stating their judgments. I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and thy judgments are as the light that goeth forth. 
The judgments of God is going to bring forth the truth. That's the idea of that last phrase. And so God is judging the nation of Israel here through Hosea, and he's telling them that they need to make things right. And then he gives us verse 6, and this is the verse that Jesus quotes. So understand the context here. For I desired mercy and not sacrifice. There's the phrase Jesus used. And the knowledge of God more than burnt offerings. You see, they had a show of goodness, but it wasn't very deep. When God's judgments would come, he said it would strip away their surface level goodness like the dew melts in the, uh, or burns off in the light of the sun. And Jesus is saying in verse number 6, what I really want is a godly heart. A godly heart is more important than going through the motions. Godly character and a true relationship with God is more important than the shadows of those things. And I love the last part of this verse where it says, the knowledge of God is more than burnt offerings. God wants you to know him. That relationship with God is what they really needed. But in verse number four, their goodness was nothing more than the morning dew. It was all on the outside. It was all a show. They had their religious routine in the temple. Go back with me to Matthew 12 now. They had their religious routine in the temple. But they did not know the God that their routine represented. It was all external for them. God gave them the temple. There was nothing wrong with the temple. The temple was not bad. It pointed to Jesus. So it was all good, right? When it went wrong was when they made the temple system and all that it contained the standard of their spirituality. Stick with me here because we're going to be making some application in a moment. As long as they went through the motions, they were okay, so they thought. So Jesus gives them this verse. If you truly understood this verse, then you would know what you need to do. Interesting note, they were living with the second temple, Herod's temple at this time. Uh, The first temple was destroyed. You know, Solomon's temple got destroyed. You know why it was destroyed? Because they had rebelled against God, and God took away the shadow of the temple and all of the things of the temple because they weren't following it anyway. So the temple and its trappings were not as important to God as his relationship with his people, and they just couldn't get it. But sometimes we can convince ourselves that as long as we go through the motions, we're godly, right? Remember, God wants our hearts. God wants a relationship. Don't lose sight of Jesus going through the motions of serving him. It's easy for us to do, isn't it? Verse number 8 here of Matthew 12, he talks about the Sabbath. The Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath day. Think about that for just a moment. Now, in order to understand that, or to get a better understanding of why Jesus used that, go with me to the book of Ezekiel, please. Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. In Ezekiel chapter 20, I want you to look at um, verse number 12. 
Actually, it's back up to verse 10 to get the context. He says, Wherefore I caused them to go forth of the land of, out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness, and I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments. Those are his words. What if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths. Do you see that? This is pretty important. Listen to what he says. I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctified them. Now let's talk about that for just a moment. God gave them a special day to worship him, the Sabbath day. And it carried significance. He said, I'm the one who sanctifies you. This Sabbath is a token to you of that truth. Do you see that? Now let me develop this thought. The Sabbath, it was a temporary rest from labor. It pictured a future permanent rest found only in Jesus Christ. Jesus provides us that rest from our labors. So this Sabbath represented that. It also represented God's ownership of all their time. Uh, by setting aside the Sabbath, it represented that God should have control of all of their time, thus sanctifying us. The Sabbath connected Israel with Jehovah in a special way. And thus it connected them to their coming Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now notice in this verse here, in Ezekiel 20 and verse number 12, look at that verse and answer this question. You don't have to answer it out loud, but answer this question. Who does the sanctifying? Do you see that at the end of verse number 12? He gave it to them as a sign between me and them, he says, that they may know that I, the Lord, or excuse me, that I am the Lord that sanctify them. So who does the sanctifying? The Lord does, right? It isn't the Sabbath day that sanctified them, right? It's the Lord. You see, the Sabbath day pictured it, but it never was meant to take the place of the one who does the sanctifying. Now, an Old Testament Jew who loved the Lord would honor the Sabbath, but he knew it pointed him to God. The Sabbath was never to become the focus. It was the instrument that placed the focus on God. Very similar to what Jesus just said, I'm greater than the temple. Same kind of scenario here. So, so far we've looked at two things that represented Jesus, but had become misappropriated by spiritual leaders. We've looked at the temple and we've looked at the Sabbath. But sometimes we let the instruments take the place of the one they represent in our lives, right? Okay, let me just make some application here. I'm talking to New Testament Christians. I'm not talking to Jews living under the Old Testament. We have certain expectations for New Testament Christians, don't we? Let's talk about them for just a minute. We believe it's appropriate to dress to honor God, right? We believe that if we don't dress appropriately, that we misrepresent our God, right? We believe we have the right music, right? By the way, I very much appreciate the music standard of Fairhaven, uh, and I appreciate that they've stood on that 
And I enjoyed the choir this morning. Thank you, young people, for singing that song. It's a beautiful arrangement, and I very much appreciate it. And I appreciate the standard of music that I have seen here in this ministry. And we hold to that. We carry the right Bible, don't we? I'm King James till I die. That's just the way it is. And we're, we're confident in that, and we have our reasons for believing that, as we should have. And all of these are things that we do. We like to sing hymns, and we believe that that's important, and we like to give money to support God's work, and we believe that all those things are important, and they are important because all of those have been given by God, and all of those things represent God's priority in our life. But when they become the focus or the standard by which we judge our own spirituality or someone else's spirituality, then we are no different than the Jews of Jesus' day. These things don't sanctify us. They point to the God who sanctifies us. And you could add to that list, there's probably a number of things. We could probably sit down and write a, a nice document on those things. We have a standard by which we expect uh, our staff members to, to, to live and to act and to dress and all of those things. We have that just like they do here, no doubt. And all of those things are expectations. But I want you to understand those things alone do not sanctify us. Those are the result of, of, a, of a relationship with God. They don't define the relationship. And when we check them off as if God is in heaven with a clipboard, checking to see if we're following the system, then we're no different than the Jews of Jesus' day. You know what? I really enjoyed singing with you all this morning. I don't know if you heard me or not, but I could barely hear myself singing with all you guys in here. So I was belting it out, so I'm a little hoarse right now, you know, because I was letting her rip. And then whoever the piano player was standing right here was, um, I was playing good and loud. And so between the piano and your voices, I couldn't hear myself very well, but I really enjoyed singing with you all this morning. But do we think that God is in heaven with a clipboard? Okay. Colton led singing. That's good. But yesterday in church, Colton did not sing the third verse of that hymn. Colton. But he sang twice, twice as loud on the fourth verse, so that kind of makes up for it, right? Do we picture God that way sometimes? I think sometimes we do, don't we? And you know what? Let me just get personal with you. I grew up in a Christian home. I was saved at the age of six, been in church all my life, and I praise God for that. I thank God for godly families. And I imagine that probably a lot of you all raised in a Christian home and been in church most of your life. Not all of you, I'm sure. But sometimes when we're around it all of our lives, we begin to misappropriate the form and we lose the relationship. Now, young people, you are at an age where you have to make God your God. And those of you who have grown up in a Christian home, you need to thank God for that. And those of you who have parents that took you to church, you need to thank God for that. But at some point in your life, the God of your parents needs to become your God. The God of your pastor 
where the God of your youth pastor needs to become your God. And you need to walk with him. And you don't need to look at him as a God sitting in heaven with a, check, a, a, a clipboard checking off the things that you're doing. You need to love your God and you need to understand what Hosea 6, 6 was saying. You see, the relationship with him is greater than the trappings. And when the relationship is right, everything gets in its proper order with a joyful heart. We often pick certain practices and we make them the focus. And God says that that attitude is nothing more than the dew of the morning grass. You see, the Messiah had arrived, and he was right there in front of them, and they got caught up in the shadows to the point to where they, they couldn't see the reality. And Christian, this morning, don't allow that to happen in your life. They were stuck in a routine that was a shadow of the real things, and they actually placed so many restrictions on the Sabbath that they made it a burden. But the Lord of the Sabbath was right there in front of them, and he came to give rest. He's greater than the Sabbath. You all remember the judgment seat of Christ is coming. And you know, when Paul writes about it in Corinthians, he says this, that he will judge our fruit by the quantity that we produce, right? No, that's not what it says. He says this, of what sort it is. Isn't that interesting? You take someone like Adonira Judson who served in Burma for years and years and didn't see one convert for, for many years. Translated the word of God into the Burmese language. By the way, I was there. I got to see a copy of that Bible that they still use today because of his work. He had no idea how God would take his work and how long that God would use his work, but he didn't get to see it through his lifetime. God doesn't judge by the quantity so much as he does by what sort it is. Remember, God sees the heart. Go back to Matthew chapter 12. Look with me at verse number 9. Verse number 9, he says this, And when he had departed thence, he went unto their synagogue. And when there was a man which had his hand withered, and they asked him, saying, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath days that they might accuse him? This boggles my mind. None of them could have healed that man. But they accused Jesus of inappropriateness because he healed on the Sabbath day. By the way, as we read through these verses, I want you to understand this is what Jesus wants to do for us. The relationship has to be right, but this is what Jesus wants to do, not in a physical sense, but I want us to make spiritual application here. Verse number uh, 11, And he said unto them, What man shall there be among you that uh, shall have one sheep, and if it fall into the pit on the Sabbath day, will he not lay hold of it and lift it up? How much then is a man better than a sheep? Wherefore, it is lawful to do well on the Sabbath days. Then saith he to the man, Stretch forth thy hand. And he stretched it forth, and it was restored whole like as the other. Then the Pharisees went out and held counsel against him, how they might destroy him. But when Jesus knew it, he withdrew himself from them. And great multitudes followed him, and he healed them all. 
and charge them that they should not make him known, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved in whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him, and he shall show judgment to the Gentiles. He shall not strive nor cry, neither shall any man hear his voice. Notice in the streets, notice verse 20, A bruised reed shall he not break. And smoking flax shall he not quench till he send forth judgment unto victory. And in his name shall the Gentiles trust. Verse number 20 um, is a beautiful picture of the gentleness of our Savior. This is what he wants to do for us. But it won't come from a shallow religious show. It comes from a relationship. Jesus Christ can take a bruised life and bring it back to usefulness. That's what this is telling us, and he wants to. Jesus Christ can take a life that is smoking and about to be extinguished, and that's the idea here of the smoking flax, is when, uh, that, that smoking flax could be easily extinguished, but Jesus is able to take that and to bring it back to flaming usefulness. That's what he wants to do. And it's not done through outward trappings. It's done through a relationship with him. And when a relationship is right, the other things will take their proper place. They just fall into place. You know why? Because when the relationship is right, you love your Savior and you want to please him. And so you look for ways to represent him. When the relationship is right, we have a desire to please him. And our life is a true reflection of our holy, loving God. And that only happens when you have a one-on-one relationship with him. It's easy to, in Bible college to kind of trust in your classes to teach you, right? It's easy to kind of fall into the trap of going to chapel and allowing the chapel preachers to, to feed you. You know, and you're in Bible class all the time. Why do you need to read it on your own? You need a one-on-one relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you don't, then all that you're picturing in your life is nothing more than the morning dew. It'll melt off when the sun gets hot. And I'm going to tell you, young person, when you get into ministry, there are days where the sun gets pretty hot. And if you don't have that relationship with Jesus Christ, you will crumble. Now, the rest of the chapter he goes on he talks about all these great things that he can do and the, the how he is greater than others as he mentions Jonah he mentions Solomon he mentions the devil he's greater than all of these things and one of the ones that he mentions is Jonah look with me in verse 41 he says the men of Nineveh shall rise in judgment with this generation and shall condemn it because they repented at the preaching of Jonas, and behold, a greater than Jonas is here. Now, Israel was proud of the fact that they were the nation of the prophets. It gave them bragging rights, not that they listened to the prophets when they were on this earth, but the prophets were part of their heritage, and so that gave them pride. And Jesus here informs them that he's greater than the prophets, but why of all the prophets did he choose Jonah? Well, the reason for that is because Jonah preached in Nineveh. Nineveh was a Gentile city, and they, re, they, they repented under Jonah's preaching and understand that that city of Nineveh did not have all the trappings that Israel had. 
They didn't have the temple. They didn't have the word of God that, that, the, that the Israelites had. They didn't have the sacrificial system. They didn't have the Sabbath days. They didn't have all of those things that pointed to Jesus Christ. And Jonah went into the city of Nineveh. And guess what? He didn't even have a concert to get attention before he preached. He preached simple truth. And they repented. So how could this city of Gentiles repent at the preaching of Jonah? And the nation of Israel that had all of the things that pointed to the coming Messiah could miss him. Jesus said, they'll stand in judgment against this nation one day. Now, Christian, I want us to understand. I'm rooting for you. I want you in ministry. It won't be long before I'll be hanging up my hat. I'm not retiring anytime soon, mind you. But I'm old enough to probably be the grandparents of some of you all in here. Grandfather, not the grandparents. I certainly couldn't be your grandmother, okay? <laughs> Somebody's going to have to pastor Brentwood Baptist Church when I'm gone. Somebody's going to have to pastor Fairhaven Baptist Church after Dr. Mitchell moves on. I have grandchildren over in Kenya. One day they're going to come back, and they're going to have a church in America that they attend and one of you young men may be pastoring that church. I'm rooting for you, but I want you to do it right. And you have got to be in a relationship with Jesus Christ and don't get caught up in the trappings. They have their place, but they are not the judge of your spirituality. Don't let your righteousness be as the morning do. Walk with your Savior every day. And all the rest will fall into place. Would you bow your head with me, please?